So I woke up, uh, it's about four years ago now, I woke up one morning to a text from my mother that said, is this stuff about Phyllis supposed to be on Facebook? Now I was as confused as all of you are right now because I didn't know what she was talking about. Um, at the time, I was, I, my job was I, I ran all of the social media for the Free Methodist Church. So the whole denomination, um, which, which in the United States, so there's like 110 churches and then and like 100,000 people. And then outside the United States, there's like another 900,000 people um, all over the world. And I was running the social media for, for the Free Methodist Church in the United States. And so what it, what it turned out, what had happened was there was this lady named Phyllis. She was a missionary. She's a, a missionary for the Free Methodist Church. And she had been kidnapped in Nigeria. Uh, and what had happened was they, they sent a, a message to the home office that said, hey, Phyllis, this missionary in Nigeria, has been, has been kidnapped. And the home office sent out an email so that people would know and they could pray. And then, like good Christians, uh, some of them put it on Facebook so that more people could pray. The problem is, when there's a kidnapping and you put it on Facebook, it tends to go viral. And the kidnappers then know that this person has a lot of access and they ask for more money if there's a ransom. So it, it should not have been on Facebook. But... I woke up and I got online and contacted the people I knew who had shared it. And but, you know, once you put something on Facebook, you can't get it back. <laughs> so it 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 went everywhere. It, the American missionary in Nigeria kidnapped, all over the place. I mean, it was on it was on uh, it was on ABC News. It was on CNN. It was on. Uh, it was on BBC News. It was on Al Jazeera. I mean, it was everywhere. Phyllis was held for about a week, uh, and then she was released. And officially, there's no ransom paid or anything. She was released after about a week, and she went home to Seattle. Uh, and she met with her family, she hung out with them, and then. About a year or so later, I forget how long it was, it may not have even been a year, Phyllis went back to Nigeria. And she's still there. In fact, I'm friends with her on Facebook now, and I got a bunch of notifications this week because she is raising money for cows for people in Nigeria, and she was updating regularly how many cows they had they had the amount equivalent to how many cows they had gotten. So it was like 27 cows, 29 cows, 31 cows. Like, kept going up. She's still in Nigeria. She's still doing her thing. She's not, I don't think she's with the Free Methodist Church specifically anymore. She's working with the Nigerian government. I don't know what she's doing. Here's the kicker. Phyllis is 75 years old. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was 71 and I was kidnapped for a week in Nigeria, 
And then I, I got released, and I was able to go home to my family. I don't know that I'd go back to Nigeria. But that's what she did. And she's still doing incredible work there. And bring this all up because we are in Daniel. We're doing, we're going through the Daniel project. Um, and at this point in the story, we're in chapter six. Daniel has been in exile probably for like 40 years. He's in, in those days, he's probably in his late 50s, 60s. He's old. Sorry, see, you guys are 50s and 60s. It's okay. In those days, in those days, he was old. But he's still going. We still got stories about him. This is probably, we're going to, Daniel chapter 6, I'd say is probably like the fourth most famous story out of the Bible. You know, it's like, it's like Jesus walking on water, David and Goliath, Adam and Eve, and then Daniel and the lion's den. I, more, more, I think. I don't know. Maybe not. But in terms of people, people this is debatable, but th- I think those three are kind of like your top three. People know those stories. Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark. There's another one. Noah's Ark. But these... Jesus... <laughs> So Daniel, Daniel in the lion's den is, is this really famous story. And it just kind of, the details kind of blend together. And even a few weeks ago, we did um, the blazing furnace. We, did, we went through the story about the image of gold and the blazing furnace. And we kind of confuse all of these stories, right? We think, oh, Daniel in the lion's den, that's, uh, that's Nebuchadnezzar, right? And um, Daniel and his friends and... They all kind of blend together, but Daniel, the lion's den is, is this really famous story. So we're going to get into it some. Um, but before we do that, I'd like to point out three things about Daniel. The first is that Daniel uh, was a man of, of hope. And I know Daniel was a man of hope uh, because of a lot of the things that he does, but First of all, if we go all the way back to chapter 1, Eric, when we started this series, pointed out that Daniel, who writes this book, says, uh, God gave Jehoiakim, king of Israel, into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. He gave Israel over to Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't say Nebuchadnezzar came and conquered Israel. He says, God gave them over to Nebuchadnezzar. And he goes off into exile. And in exile, he enters in to, to relationships with all of these kings. With, with Nebuchadnezzar, he, when, when people didn't want to tell him what his dream meant, Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel steps in with Nebuchadnezzar and tells him what his dream meant. He enters in with this courage. And all of this courage flows out of this hope. He's, he's got hope in exile. And in, in a lot of ways, that's what 
that's what Phyllis has in Nigeria. She has, she has hope that what she's doing is, is good, entering into the lives of the people around her. And that's what Daniel's doing. He's a man of hope. The second thing is that Daniel is a man of integrity. And we're going to see this some later in the story. But one of the things uh, from last week, Daniel chapter 5, um, is that King Belshazzar, who's, who's Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belshazzar, when there's all this writing on the wall and he's really scared, he says, whoever can tell me what this writing on the wall says, I'm going to give them purple robes and a gold chain. I'm going to give them all this stuff. And Daniel walks in and says, you can keep your stuff. He didn't want it, which I always, I just, he says, uh, I want to read it because it's great. You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Because Daniel doesn't enter into these spaces for power. He doesn't enter in to gain prestige. He's, en- he's entering in because, because God has called him into these places. So Daniel is a man of integrity, and we're going to see this more in a little bit. And then the third thing is that uh, Daniel is a man of, of community. He has relationship. He has relationship with his people in a lot of ways because of his position, because he was a slave, and he's been raised up to, to leading over large portions of, of Babylon and then later Persia. He's, he has... He, he stands in for his people, and he has relationships with the kings. He has good relationships with the people around him. And all of these things kind of flow out of each other. So he's a man of hope. He's a man of integrity, which come out of, comes out of his hope. And then he's a man of, of good relationship, of community. So we're going to get into the story, and we're going we're gonna to see some of why Daniel is this way. Some of what makes Daniel who he is, even in, even in his, um, even after forty years in exile, he's holding on to his hope, which is amazing. Daniel chapter six says it pleased Darius to appoint one hundred and twenty satraps or officials um, to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. So the king's trying to protect his, his realm and all his stuff. He wants to remain king and he wants to have money and, and wealth. And so he's got 120, this is, this is the way the kingdom is set up. So it's him, and then he's got three administrators, and then he's got 120 officials under those three administrators. And one of those three administrators is Daniel. So he's really, if you, he's one of the, the four most important people in the kingdom, which is impressive and speaks to Daniel's hope and integrity because there was this giant regime change. At the end of chapter 5, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson Belshazzar is killed and Darius takes over. You would think that he would want to bring in his own people, right? That he just, like the... The thing that you think is, okay, he's going to kill everybody, he's going to bring in his own people, and they're going to rule. But he doesn't. He puts Daniel 
in this high position. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. That's a step up. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. He's a man of integrity. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So because he's a man of integrity, because he's not corrupt, he's not negligent, he does all of his work the way he should, these men go after his hope, which is that he's, he's maintained, even in exile, his, his practice of following God. And they decide that's the only way we're going to get him. You can't get him... I mean, the expectation would be that he'd be corrupt, right? He's, he's over all of these people, but they can't find anything to accuse him with. So the administrators and the satraps went as a group to the king and said, O King Darius, live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, O king, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. As I, as I was going through this this week, I kept going back to the, the blazing furnace, where the blazing furnace is is really about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing up to power, to the power of Nebuchadnezzar. It's really about them. them they, they stand before the king and they say, we're not going to worship you. This is different. This isn't Darius going, worship me, worship me. This is these, these people coming to him and saying, hey, you're, they're, they're like buttering him up. They're like, hey, you're, you're a good guy. You're king. You're powerful. We should be worshiping you. We should be praying to you. And then they, they, this, this is the only way they could trap Daniel. And they, they, by, by the way they do that is actually by entering into his relationship with the king and kind of creating a wedge. Or at least they think they're creating a wedge there. But they do set up this good trap. Because according to the laws... The king can make an edict, but then the edict can't be repealed. Which just seems like good law. Can't just go back and... I think it was probably a reaction to Nebuchadnezzar who just changed whatever he wanted. Because he was the king. He was super powerful and he could do whatever he wanted. And they were like, ah, we don't want that. But anyway, King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published... He went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, 
he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. This isn't a story about standing up to power like the blazing furnace. This is a story about Daniel's consistency in his relationship with God. Now, I don't know about you, but much like in the way that I would probably not go back to Nigeria, I'd probably want to stay home with my family, I think if the king made this decree and said, hey, you all have to pray to me, I don't think, so I, I, don't th- I don't want to say that we wouldn't pray to God anymore. But I think we'd probably close the windows. I don't know. It just seems logical. If I'm going to be thrown into a den of lions, I'm going to close the windows when I pray so that no one knows that I'm praying. But it gets even, Daniel gets, it, it, it's even more, uh, what's the word? It's even more brash than, than that. It's not just that he, op- he leaves the windows open, but it says, this is great, then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. Now, when it says these men, it's saying that all of these administrators and satraps. So how many were there again? 120 satraps and two other administrators. Daniel doesn't just leave the window open. He leaves the window open and then 122 people come and watch him pray. Like, what does that look like? Did they all like peek around the corner one at a time? Did they just walk down the street and go, yep, he's praying? 122 people. This is Daniel's consistency. He stands in he stands in his hope that God is God. That God is going to do what he's going to do. And where did the, the, the hope and the integrity, the community, where does this flow out of? It comes out of this. Three, where, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs window, to his, up, to his upstairs room, where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Daniel doesn't just have hope. He's not just in exile with, with, this, like, with this hope that, that things are going to be fine. He's not just a man of, of integrity who's doing all the right things because he thinks it's the right thing to do. All of this flows out of this moment. It's, it's the, the three times a day that he kneels down and prays but really what's important about this is that he orients himself towards Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, he orients himself towards the temple in Jerusalem, towards the place 
where the people of God, where Israel had relationship with God, where they made their sacrifices, where they entered into relationship with God. He orients himself every day towards the root of his identity, which is in Jerusalem. This is what what makes him who he is. What gives him identity is relationship with God in the temple in Jerusalem. And every day he kneels down and he prays in the direction of that, that relationship, towards the root of his identity. And it's out of that that comes the hope and the integrity and the community. This is, this is where, where hope comes from, is that when, when we turn towards the root of our identity, and when we hold to that, the thing that we're holding to is, is that what God says is true. So we don't turn and pray towards Jerusalem. We don't pray towards the temple and towards, towards those sacrifices. But we do, we do pray towards the sacrifice. We pray towards the cross. We, we orient ourselves. We need to be orienting ourselves daily towards the root of our identity, which is in the cross, which is in the sacrifice of Jesus and his resurrection. This is what gives us identity. It's, what, it's where the, the, the truth of what Jesus did is that we are known and loved because of what he did. And just as, as Daniel orients himself every day towards Jerusalem, towards the temple, towards the root of his identity, that is what we are called to turn towards. What we are called to, to root ourselves in the cross and in our identity, which is that Christ died for us. And out of that flows our hope. If we continue on, these 122 people peeking around the corner at Daniel praying, go to the king and they say, didn't you say that for the next 30 days anyone who prays to anyone other than you uh, will be thrown into the lion's den? And the king says, yes, I did say that. And I made an edict and I can't repeal it. And then they say, okay, well, Daniel's doing that. And Darius is distressed. Because this wedge isn't actually between Darius and Daniel. Darius and Daniel have a good relationship. The wedge is actually between, it turns out, is actually between the king and the, the satraps. The person that he's mad at, where I think what they expected was Nebuchadnezzar, when they went to Nebuchadnezzar and they were like, hey, and admittedly it's probably different people because this was several years before. But when they went to Nebuchadnezzar and they said, hey, they're not worshiping you, he got angry and he tried to kill them. And he was like, we need, they're going to go into the blazing furnace. Darius is actually mad at the people who accused Daniel. And he actually is, tries to figure out how to get Daniel out of this. But he can't. So Daniel goes into the lion's den and they roll a stone in front of it and the king comes the next morning and says, Daniel, are you still alive? And Daniel says, Yes, the Lord shut the mouth of the lions. He sent an angel to shut the mouth of the lions. So they roll the stone away. And Daniel comes out. 
and the king throws these 120-something people in with the lions instead. It's a lot of lions. I don't know. And their families. Yeah, great kid story. We don't really talk about that when we tell this story, right? But here's the thing. Is that Daniel has hope. He has integrity, he has community with Darius and with, with his people. He has all of these really good things. He's kneeling down and orienting himself every day towards Jerusalem. And trouble still comes. Because his, his hope is not actually that trouble will not come. Daniel is, is, is in exile. He's essentially, I mean, he at least begins as a slave. He's not where he belongs, and neither are we. This world is not as it should be. And our, but our hope is not that, that everything would be better. Our hope is not that everything's going to be fine. Our hope is not that, I mean, that is something we hope for, right? But that's not actually what God promises. He actually says, in this world, you will have trouble. What carries Daniel through this is not that when he heard it, he went home and prayed. It's that even before he heard what was going to happen, he had spent his life praying, daily orienting himself towards the temple and towards the sacrifices, daily orienting himself towards God. And our hope flows out of us daily orienting ourselves towards the cross and towards the sacrifice of of Jesus. And that doesn't mean that there won't be trouble. But what does that look like? 1 Peter um, is a letter in the New Testament. And I'm going the wrong direction. There we go. 1 Peter 3.15. I really think Peter was thinking about Daniel and the lion's den when he wrote this. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. So look to Christ. Orient yourself towards Christ. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So we are called to, in, in our hope, in our, in our relationship with Christ, we are called to carry hope out into the world. We're called to be people of integrity. We're called to build community in the world. And we're called to be ready to give an answer for that hope. That that hope is in Christ. That that place where we orient ourselves daily. I want to end with a, a short story. I a few weeks ago, uh, there's a. I don't know if you know this, but uh, mesquite trees grow really well in the desert. Did you know that? Um. And one of the things that mesquite trees do is they, they send out these pods all the time. 
They are all over my yard. And I learned that you have to dig them up all the way down to the root when you first see them. Like when you first see that little thing popping up, you have to dig all the way down and get the root out. Because what happens is, so I was at home a few weeks ago and we were, Lane wanted me to dig up this mesquite. Little guy, like that big. And it turned out what had happened was that it had popped up and the, someone had come along and trimmed it. And then it had popped up again and someone had come along and trimmed it. So when I started trying to get this, because I know that you have to dig down to get the root out. When I started to dig down, it turned out it wasn't just this little guy. It was about that thick. Just below the ground. It was about an inch thick. I had to dig two feet down, and I still had to stand there, stand over it, and grab it with both hands and pull on it until it popped out. And the taproot was like two feet long, and I didn't even get all of it. It like broke. It's going to come back. But that root, see, we are actually, we're like mesquite trees. Actually, it's, it's God's word. I, don't, I haven't really worked out this metaphor yet. But we are, <laughs> that root, when we daily orient ourselves towards Christ, when we daily turn to Jesus, towards the cross, towards the sacrifice of Jesus, what happens is that root begins to grow deep and grabs on. Growing into Jesus, orienting ourselves towards Jesus, is like having that two-foot taproot that you just can't get out. It's what produces in us hope and integrity. It's what, it's what grows us into community. And it's what carries us through the lion's den. It's the consistency that, that, that it's the consistency that came before the lion's den that carries Daniel through this time of trouble. That's what I want to call you to is to turn towards Christ. And I have a few minutes for questions. So, someone wants to run the microphone for me. Yeah, it is. It is. Did you did you turn back? So you mentioned. Uh... You mentioned uh, that it was undoubtedly probably a different set of people that was coming after Daniel this time as opposed to years before when it was Nebuchadnezzar, but they come after him the same with the same kind of tenacity. Do you think that there were still some of the same older people that were fostering negative feelings towards Daniel, or do you think that you know that group of administrators would have 
just gone after whoever Darius was going to put up above them all because he's going to make a number one, a number one of the three anyway, right? He's going to make a big boss man out of one of them. So, do you think they? I think it. I think it's possible that there were some of the same people. I, I don't think there were. I think actually it's just that Daniel's position, they expected corruption. They expected him to be be trying to take away from the king, to take some on the side. And so when they when he was elevated, they, they went after him because he was elevated, and they didn't like that he was above them. Um, I mean, here's, he's in exile. He's, he's not from there. He's not, he doesn't belong there. And they couldn't get him on anything. They knew that. I mean, you, they they knew they couldn't get him on anything before. But yeah, that's. I think I I don't think it was the same people. It's it's entirely possible that there were some some older men who had been there before. But I think it's just that they didn't want Daniel to have that position because he was different. Can you give some examples, kind of flesh out what it looks like for you when you're orienting yourself toward Christ day to day? Yeah. Um, I think in a lot of ways it's, it's practicing the disciplines, um, which we're doing in, in, our, in our pilgrim group. We have a study on the disciplines that was really good um, in our Bible studies. But it, it's, it is spending time daily praying it is spending time remembering the, what God has done and continuing to tell the stories. I think that's, that's the one thing that you see again and again throughout Daniel and really throughout the te- Old Testament um, is that, that we're called to tell the story of what God has done. Um, and I think the more that we enter into community and tell the story of what God has done and the more we learn those stories, um, the more that hope is rooted in us. I think, I mean, I think it's, it's prayer, it's reading the Bible, but it's also entering into relationship and, and telling, telling about what God has done in our lives. Even if we've heard the story already. So I'm going to worry about the mesquite tree. Um, <laughs> you know, I think that our lives are a lot like the mesquite tree in that... Um, the deserts are really inhospitable place, right? I mean, yeah. nothing ought to grow here. I mean, we, we shouldn't be here. This makes no sense. <laughs> but we manage, and I think our lives are like the mesquite tree in that, you know, we poke up through the soil and start to sprout some leaves. It's like, I got it. I've made it. I don't need that taproot anymore. I mean, I I can handle it myself. I'll get my own sunshine, my own rain. I don't need that. And so um, I was thinking this week about, uh, I I read the obituary for the, uh, he was the father of psychotherapy, whoever he was. I can't remember his name. I should. But (laughs) anyway, um, at the end of it was this really awesome quote that was that our problems are not the problem. The problem is the expectation that we shouldn't or won't have problems. Therefore, we think that having problems is a problem. And, yep. um, and you can unpack that pretty quick, but, um, <laughs> but just, just that way that our problem is just thinking that we poke up through and we're self-sufficient. We got it. But in reality, we're, we, we're nothing without taproot. We're nothing unless we, we have Christ in our lives. Yeah. 
Thanks, Bob. That's good. Uh, one more, and then we got to finish. I feel like if the king decreed that and I was Daniel, I'd be like, God would understand. It's fine. I'm just going to take a break for a month. God is going to be fine. But it's it's such a cool example because, like, you know, without Daniel's discipline, like, God would not have had the opportunity to shine in that lion's den. And, like, you know, it was, I think it's such a beautiful example. Like, yeah, I'm sure God will understand and you'll be forgiven. But look what God does when you are consistent in your relationship with him. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I think that's where the first Peter passage really comes through is that we, we actually, when we live in that way, when we are, are disciplined and when we are, are actually turning ourselves towards Christ and building up that hope, we actually carry that hope with us out into the world. And we carry that hope with us to our jobs and into our relationships um, and that actually people see that. Um, and being ready to give an answer for that is, is good. And that's really what Daniel does. Thanks, Rose. So there are a few ways to respond. Um, the first way is the healing chair, which is in the back. It's the white chair. Um, and if you would like prayer, the healing chair is, is really, I mean, in a lot of ways, it's representative of what what we do here at the village in, in healing the city one person at a time. But if you are, are experiencing the brokenness or if you're going through trouble and you'd like to be prayed for, um, that's, that's the place to sit and someone will come and pray for you. Uh, the second way to respond is through offering. Um, if you are visiting with us, there's there's no expectation that you would give. Um, this is the way that we can we can do a lot of the things that we do, including um, the food bank and and ministering to each other. This is the way that we we interact, and so this is the way that we enter into healing the city one person at a time. Um, so I'm gonna start those around. If you can just pass them around this direction, that would be helpful. The Third way to respond um, is through communion. And this is actually another way that we orient ourselves towards the cross um, in acknowledging the sacrifice of Christ and its impact on our lives. Um, and so if you can stand with Christ and if you, can, if you can enter into that relationship, I'd invite you to come and to take the bread and dip it in the wine um, and remember uh, what Christ has done in our lives. The last way to respond is that we're going to play some music, um, reflect on the words, and, and spend some time either listening or singing along and, and um, allow yourself to be called to, to worshiping Jesus and worshiping God.